Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic. This is The Athletic Baseball Show on The Athletic Podcast Network. Welcome in to the Athletic Baseball Show. I'm Tim McMaster along with Ken Rosenthal. This is our mailbag episode, week two of the offseason. Ken, how are you doing? I'm doing well, Tim. How are you? I am great. And I guess, depending on what happens with the possible lockout in two weeks, I may be doing better than baseball very soon. We're going to get into that. Uh, we're doing things a little bit differently in the offseason. This mailbag episode with Ken will be coming at you every other week through the offseason. Starkville with Jason Stark, Doug Glanville. That'll be the alternative weeks. And then at the end of the week, you'll get either Baseball Barista with Hunter Pence and Grant Brisby or DVR and Law with Keith Law and Derek Van Riper. And right in the middle of all that, Evan Drellick, every week on Wednesdays, is going to be breaking down the latest going on with the CBA negotiations. So lots going on. Ken, you joined him last week. Thank you for doing that. And that was a great kickoff to that podcast for sure. Evan's going to be busy this offseason. We're all going to be busy talking about labor. (laughs) Yeah, certainly are. All right. um, Well, with the impending lockout, just a couple of weeks away, as I mentioned, there was some, I guess, speculation of whether or not teams would make any moves in these two weeks or three weeks leading up to the lockout. The answer, at least from the Detroit Tigers' perspective, is yes. They inked Eduardo Rodriguez to a five-year, $77 million deal, agreed to a deal, um, that's a pretty big deal to jump into at this point in the offseason, Ken. It is, but at the same time, Tim, I'm hearing about a lot of activity on the starting pitching market in particular. I would imagine some relievers also are going to go before the CBA expires midnight December 1st, and we might even see deals beyond that. What is happening is that there are teams with money. There are teams that want certain players regardless of what the new economic landscape might be with a different CBA. So, yes, we're going to see deals. I would not be surprised if we see lesser starting pitchers. And I mean lesser, not the top guys. Eduardo Rodriguez would fit in that. He's not a lesser pitcher. He's a good pitcher. But I'm trying to say he's not one of the Scherzer and that group. Robbie Ray. I don't know that we'll see those two sign. But... Some in the other group, yes, we definitely could see them. I'm talking about Di Scalfani, Alex Wood, pitchers at that level, because they're not going to get astronomical deals. They'll get good deals. Eduardo Rodriguez, in my opinion, got a good deal. So from that perspective, yes, we may see quite a bit of movement before December 1st. And what would happen in a lockout is that the sport would go into a transaction freeze. No trades, no free agent signings, nothing of that sort. So teams identifying certain players and pitchers might want to get those deals done now. 
Could a Correa, a Seager, a Semyon, one of the big shortstops, one of the major starting pitchers get done? Anything is possible, but at the same time, I would think the bigger deals would come later. Don't hold me to that, though. <laughs> yeah, we, we will certainly see. Uh, well, you spent last week at the GM meetings out in California. You have a story up on The Athletic today about the lack of progress in achieving front office diversity. White Sox Executive Vice President Ken Williams, is it fair for me to say called out his colleagues to a degree, Ken? Yes, that is fair to say. And I want to make one point about this article. I'm not going to go through the whole thing on the podcast because people should read it to understand the full context and understand exactly what it's about. But whenever I write about hiring and how it affects underrepresented groups, I hear from people on Twitter in the comments section saying, hey, what's the big deal? Why are you writing about this? Just pick the best person. The reason I am writing about this and continue to write about it is because the best person does not always get picked and that different rules seem to apply for different groups. And one of the points Ken Williams made to me and presumably in that meeting, which I was not privy to, is that a number of executives now are hired without really much experience at all. We've seen that. We've seen that actually on the field too. People hired with minimal experience. And yet, when it comes to hiring women and people of color, those people are often told, ah, you don't have the experience. Well, you can't have it both ways. And that is why some good people, I feel quite comfortable saying, are not getting the jobs that they should be getting. So when you tell me, people commenting and saying things on Twitter and in the comments section, when you tell me that it's just about picking the best person, if that was happening, then people like Ken Williams and others would not be so upset with the way the process is working. And this is a club issue. I should make this point as well. It is not so much a Major League Baseball issue Right now, it is a situation where MLB is trying to at least create some programs to improve the pipeline of candidates. It's up to the clubs to hire those candidates or certain candidates from that group and then take that step. And if we don't see that, you're going to see continued frustration. And Ken Williams, last point, has been a major league executive since 1995, more than a quarter century. What he's saying in this story is that things haven't changed in more than a quarter century. The sport is not happy with that. When I say the sport, I mean the league and the overall landscape in the opinion of a lot of people needs to change. Really interesting story. Check it out on The Athletic and you can save 33% off a subscription to The Athletic, an annual subscription. Go to theathletic.com slash baseball show. Let's get into the mailbag. Hey, this is Ken. I'm not available right now. Please leave a voicemail. If you want to get involved next week on the mailbag, you can use your voice or you can email us. Please call the hotline. We like that. 646-543-7072 is the number. The email address, Show at gmail.com. We do have some CBA questions, no surprise there, but I don't want to start there. Instead, let's start with another big story that came out after the postseason came to an end, that the retirement of Buster Posey. Lots of listeners asking about Buster, um, generally going into a similar realm about it. So let's get to this one, Ken. Hey, Ken. My name is Will. I am in Denver, Colorado. 
and I'm a Giants fan. Given that, you can probably guess some of what this question is about. It was just announced today that Buster Posey is going to be retiring. I personally am getting hit real hard by that news. I grew up watching the Giants. He's been the heartbeat and the soul of his team since, since really he entered the league in 2010. Man, the idea that he wouldn't be a Hall of Famer to me is unfathomable. But I've noticed there's a lot of debate going on about it online, and I'm wondering what your thoughts are. I mean, some of his stats are a little bit lower, um, with only 1,500 hits, only uh, in the 140s and home runs, given the amount of accolades he's had and just what he's meant to baseball and what he's meant to the Giants for the past 12 years. Um, I'm wondering how you think that balances with his um, career milestones. Well, it's a great question, but actually I don't think it's much of a question at all, at least not for me. In my opinion, Buster Posey is a no-doubt Hall of Famer. Now, he does not have the longevity that you generally associate with players who are elected to Cooperstown. He's something of the catching version of Sandy Koufax. They both had 12-year careers. And yet, I go back to something that Mike Messina told me when he was in his final season. And I said, hey, you're I don't know what the number was at that point, but he was approaching his final number of 270 wins. I said, what if you keep going for 300, cement that Hall of Fame case? And he said, if my Hall of Fame case is not cemented by now, then it's not going to get any more enhanced by continuing to pitch and having counting numbers. What he was saying was, my career is what it is. And it's not going to be judged on my final three years or shouldn't be. What it should be judged on is the breadth of what I've accomplished so far. Posey, in his 12 seasons, accomplished so much. And yes, the 1,500 hits are the thing that stands out for a lot of people. And the reason, as Jay Jaffe, the great Hall of Fame expert from Fangraphs, pointed out, is that no player whose career has taken place in the post-1960 expansion era that had fewer than 2,000 hits has been elected to Cooperstown. And there have been a number of players who are kind of on the border who maybe should be elected to Cooperstown, who do not have the 2,000 hits. Okay, I get it. Posey, though, is a catcher. He is retiring for all the right reasons. One, the physical toll. Two, a desire to be with his family. And this season, and I remember talking with Andrew Baggerly of The Athletic about this, this season might have sealed it because he came back so strong and had a typically brilliant Buster Posey year, albeit in a more condensed fashion. He didn't play quite as much. But... We're talking about a seven-time All-Star. We're talking about a guy who offensively and defensively was among the best in the game. Offensively, his career OPS Plus is 129. That's 29% above the league average. He's one of the top framers of his era, and pitching, pitch framing, I should say, counts now. It's something that teams consider. He is someone that, when the Giants won three World Series in five years, he was behind the plate in 36 of 38 games. 36 of those 38 postseason games during the World Series runs during that five-year period. I frankly don't know what more (laughs) you could ask of a player. And sure, you'd like to see a little bit more longevity. Okay, I get it. But he accomplished so much in that career that he had that I don't think this is going to be much of a debate. Now, people have said in the wake of his retirement, what about Thurman Munson? What about Jorge Posada? Munson... 1,558 hits, Posada 1,664. The difference is Posey was a better offensive player 
going by OPS plus than both of them. Munson, 116, 16% above league average. Posada, 121, 21% about above league average. And remember, Posey was at 129, 29% above. And keep in mind, Posey was clearly a better defender than Posada. Munson, I don't remember as clearly. I'd have to ask some people from that era. So I don't think the election of Posey would water down the list of players in the hall, list of catchers in the hall, and open it up to players who did not ever get a sniff, like Thurman and like Jorge Posada. Great players. I just don't see them quite as Hall of Famers. Yeah, and when you think about the eye test, too, to me, Buster, no doubter. When he was playing the last few years of his career, you you see him play, you think of him, and I just thought, well, that's a future Hall of Famer. Building a portfolio with Fidelity Basket Portfolios is kind of like making a sandwich. It's as simple as picking your stocks and ETFs, sort of like your meats and other topics, and managing it as one big, juicy investment. Mmm, now that's pretty good. Learn more at fidelity.com slash baskets. Investing involves risk, including risk of loss. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC. Member NYSC SIPC. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Um, all right. Another interesting move this offseason was the retirement of former Astros pitching coach Brent Strom, followed by his unretirement to join the D-backs. Uh, Rick asks... When pitching coach Brent Strom announced he was leaving Houston, he said he was stepping away for a while. Granted, he said there was a chance he would be back in the game in some fashion, but now three weeks later, he signs with Arizona. What's the real reason he left Houston? Rick, I actually take Strom at face value with what he said, and I did speak to him after this announcement came. And yes, I know it seems odd, but what he said was, this is what he said. Eight years in one place is a long time. He was in Houston eight years. He wanted the new challenge of building up the Diamondbacks staff the way he built up the Astros staff. And it's a lesser thing. I actually thought this might be a more prominent thing, but he said it was lesser. He lives in Tucson, which is about an hour and a half drive from Phoenix, so this puts him somewhat closer to home. But really, he said the challenge is what he wanted most. He had no problem with Baker, no problem with anybody with the Astros. Now, who knows whether the effect of the sign-stealing scandal and just the lingering antipathy from fans about that played into this for him. I kind of doubt it, knowing Strom a little bit. He wasn't a player, of course. He was the pitching coach, and he was never really linked with this thing other than being the pitching coach at that time. And who knows if he just felt somewhat burned out in Houston and certainly this was under a new GM, James Click, and a new manager, Dusty Baker. But again, he insisted he had no problems with anyone there. So as much as we'd all like a real story, <laughs> if there is one, I don't know that there is one in this particular case. I wonder if it was any other team than Arizona nearby where he lives if he would have just passed, but it's just too too good to pass up. Um, 
All right. We have some questions about specific players, so we're going to get into those. This one from Kevin. He says, do you think that a Byron Buxton trade is likely? And if so, what's the best fit? Yes, I do think a Byron Buxton trade is likely, and here's why. If you recall, he turned down, according to reporting that I did along with Dan Hayes, our Twins writer, an $80 million offer over seven years from the Twins, an $80 million extension. Now, Byron Buxton, when healthy, is worth a whole lot more than $80 million. Problem is, he's not always healthy. And for the Twins, they felt this was kind of a gamble to take, even offering him $80 million. And now that he has turned it down, and now that he has just one year of control left, I see the Twins, yes, doing something here. And you have to look at the state of the team when you assess this. If they were a playoff caliber team, and Buxton had that one year of control remaining, and they wanted him in center field for that final push, I would say, yeah, absolutely. Keep him, take your chances. But that's not where the Twins are. And this is something I think a lot of fans might not realize. I don't know that I realized it until Dan told me this at the GM meetings. The Twins basically need three starting pitchers. None of their guys from last year are back in terms of Barrios, who was traded, Maeda, who is hurt, Pineda, who is a free agent. They don't have a veteran returning on this staff. What they have are a bunch of prospects and two guys that they're counting on who have between them 25 starts and 119 major league innings combined. I'm talking about Joe Ryan and Bailey Ober. Joe Ryan and Bailey Ober are the fixtures in this rotation right now, and they're hardly experienced at all. So can the Twins build an entire rotation and compete for a postseason berth? Sure, that's conceivable. But better they should take a step back, in my opinion, deal Buxton, try to make some other things happen, and point toward... 2023 and beyond it's not a situation where you're talking about tearing it down or rebuilding it's simply a retooling to give their prospects time and they do have a number of pitching prospects give them time to develop and at the same time build a better core around them they have the capability of doing that the twins do so a trade of buxton would be part of it and i do expect it to happen All right. Dan says, hey, Ken, I have silently predicted to my fellow Cleveland fans for years now that while we would indeed fail to keep Lindor, they would be cushioned by retaining Jose Ramirez. As the clock continues to tick on that prediction, it's beginning to feel overly bold and my confidence is waning. While there is hope elsewhere for the Guardians, is there any hope on this front? Ah, Jose Ramirez. This is a fascinating case and a major test for the Guardians as they begin their rebranding. Now, Ramirez is under control for two more years, through 2023. They've got him cheap for two more years, $12 million in 22, $14 million in 23. Those are club options, but of course they would exercise them. He is now entering his age 29 season. So when you talk about an extension, there are some comps. One would be Altuve, five years, $151 million in new money when he signed his deal. That was from his ages 30 to 34 seasons. And Christian Yelich. Seven years, $182 million in new money from his ages 30 to 36 season. Now, we all know about the Guardians' history when they were the Indians of losing top talent, either to free agency or trades before they reach free agency. Francisco Lindor, of course, was kind of the height of that, right? 
They traded him with only one year of control left and did not get the return that they should have or would have if they had traded him earlier. So this is where the Guardians are right now at a pivotal moment with Ramirez. Now keep in mind the greater landscape as well. They are rebranding. They are starting a new era. They are trying to get back into contention. For all those reasons, signing Jose Ramirez makes absolute sense long term. He's the guy. Build around him. Over the last five seasons, only two players have had a higher F4. Mike Trout and Mookie Betts. Two guys. So this is the guy. And it's a question now of how open he would be to an extension and how willing the Guardians would be to engage in the type of negotiation that, frankly, they have not engaged in the past. Zach Mazel of The Athletic wrote a great detailed analysis of this situation recently, and he pointed out that the Guardians have never signed a player for more than $60 million. That was Edwin Encarnacion. Well, to get Jose Ramirez done on an extension, they're going to need to pay a whole lot more than $60 million. I'm not saying it's 200 plus, but that might be ultimately where this goes. And remember, as Zach wrote, there were suggestions from the Guardians, then the Indians, that they had offered Lindor $200 million plus. If that's the case, the money is there. So let's see what happens. It's a really interesting one and kind of a test for the Guardians. Because if you lose Ramirez on top of Lindor and Kluber and the rest, then where are you exactly? All right. And let's go to the Cardinals now. This one from Dayton says, there have been rumors about the Cardinals' potential of going after Marcus Stroman this offseason. What do you think makes the most sense for the Cardinals' approach to go after starting pitching and possible bench depth for offense? All of the above? How's that? <laughs> the Cardinals are in an interesting spot. One, they have a new manager, Oliver Marmel, who, because of the circumstances surrounding his arrival, the unexpected dismissal of Mike Schilt, that puts a little bit more pressure on the front office to give him the best team possible and to justify all that went down, right? So then it becomes a question of what is the best course for this team? Ideally, I'd like to see them get a bat in the middle infield, second base or shortstop, and a starting pitcher. Now, the middle infield bat is necessary because while the Cardinals have good defenders in second base and shortstop, I'm talking about DeYoung, and I'm talking about Edmund and, of course, Sosa. None of those guys had a successful offensive season in 2021. So there's a void there. Now, you could keep that group, keep the infield defense really strong, and go for a starting pitcher like Stroman, who would thrive as a sinker baller in front of that infield defense. Maybe promote Nolan Gorman at some point this season. He's a left-handed hitting second baseman or a guy who's playing second base now. And go about it that way and invest in the pitching. Either way, you're going to need to invest in pitching because here is their situation. Adam Wainwright, I love him. We all love him. He's 40. Their next three starting pitchers, Flaherty, Michaelis, and Dakota Hudson, they combined for 131 and two-thirds innings last season because of injuries. So there is some fragility in that rotation. There's some long-term questions about just how effective they would be. And clearly, the Cardinals could use a stabilizer type. And Stroman is that. Really, a number of the starting pitchers available are that. Gossman would be another one. Will they go in that direction? I'm not sure. I think they're going to kind of play it by ear. 
Obviously, there's always been a lot of talk since the arrival of Nolan Arenado about the possibility of signing Trevor Story, Arenado's former Rockies teammate. I would think that is possible. But at the same time, I don't see how they can leave their starting pitching in the current form that it is. All right, and one more on specific players. This is from about the Yankees from Adam. So you mentioned before, Ken, that you see Robbie Ray, Matt Olson, and Corey Seager going to the Yankees. How confident are you on each? I know one for sure, Seager, is... Oh, let me do that again. I, for one, know Seager is and always has been a Yankees target, and the fact that the Yankees are actually talking about Correa is proof they never sign the free agents that they actually talk about. <laughs> well, first of all, what I wrote was kind of a scenario or an example of what the Yankees might do. I didn't say I was confident that they would do any of these things, (laughs) but I was just laying out kind of one plan, one way to go about it if they could get all these players. And I believe I mentioned not just Olsen as a trade possibility, but Byron Buxton, and yes, Ray and Seager as free agents. Will the Yankees get all of those guys? I highly doubt it, but those are areas of need, no doubt. They need another starting pitcher behind Cole, They could use an upgrade in center field. We all know they need a shortstop and preferably a left-handed hitter and a left-handed hitter at first base. Be it Olsen or Anthony Rizzo or Freddie Freeman, any of those guys would do. So that's where they are. And in my view, they have to spend some money this offseason. They went under the luxury tax threshold last year. They reset their penalty rate to the minimum. Assuming this system is even in place in the new CBA, they have no excuse at least in that respect, not to spend. And keep in mind, too, the last time they went really heavy for multiple players in free agency was 2009, or before the 2009 season. $423.5 million for CeCe Sabathia, Mark Teixeira, and A.J. Burnett. Worked out pretty well. They won the World Series that season. Now, we all know winning the offseason does not always equate to winning a World Series. We all know that. And it's no guarantee that if the Yankees do all these things, they're going to be right where all their fans want them to be. But at this point, given the frustrations of last season and the front office's failures at times to put together the right pieces in place, it's time for them to kind of kick it up again. And that's what I was talking about in my column previewing the offseason. Time to win back the back page here in New York. Are you struggling to close deals? B2B selling is tougher than ever, and that's why I want to tell you about LinkedIn Sales Navigator. One more great product from LinkedIn. You're there to network, you're there to look for jobs, you're there to post jobs, and how about LinkedIn Sales Navigator? It's a sales intelligence platform that helps professionals effectively prospect and engage high-value customers, drive higher revenue, and increase sales performance. Sales Navigator helps you target the right buyers, surface key signals such as job Job changes or which accounts you should prioritize and shows you hidden allies so you can find those buyers that are most likely to convert. Fueled by LinkedIn's 1 billion member platform, Sales Navigator gives you the most up-to-date first-party data enabling you to unlock conversations with the people that matter. Right now, you can try LinkedIn Sales Navigator and get a 60-day free trial at linkedin.com slash baseball show. That is linkedin.com slash baseball show for a 60-day free trial. Let LinkedIn Sales Navigator help you sell like a superstar today. Just go to linkedin.com slash baseball show and get started. Mother's Day is around the corner. 
Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. All right, uh, let's go back to voicemail. We're finally going to get to the CBA. There was plenty of questions. We'll, we'll get a couple in here, Ken. Uh, first, a voicemail. Hi, guys. My name is Kyle. Um, so obviously the collective bargaining agreement is going to dominate the next two, three months or so. But if we're being honest, it's kind of been looming in the background for about two or three years now. So my question is, when this deal hopefully eventually gets completed, are we looking at another five-year deal like we got in 2016 where it was signed and almost within a year everybody was kind of like talking about it again, saying 2021 it's going to be a battle? Or are we going to get a NFL-type deal where it's 10 years long and we don't really have to worry about it for eight, nine years? Uh, just give me your thoughts on that. Thanks. Bye. Kyle, I'd be shocked if we got a deal as you said, in the NFL style, eight to 10 years. Generally speaking, if I'm not mistaken, these deals have always been five years. Maybe there was a six-year deal at one point, but I don't recall exactly. So that's the length, the approximate length we're talking about. Five years is what I would expect. Now, you're right. The last time the deal was reached, it didn't take any time at all for people to start pointing out its problems. In fact, that night... The ink was not dry when agents were blowing up my phone saying this deal is not good for the players. I wrote about it that night, night one. (laughs) So, yes, you would not like to see that happen. You would like to see this deal be fair to both sides and to put the sport in a better place economically, in a better place competitively, in a better place aesthetically. And when I say aesthetically, I mean the actual product on the field itself. I'd like to see some rules changes that I've written about, Jason's written about, that would improve the pace, restore the balance between pitching and hitting, all kinds of things that could happen. I'm not talking about changing the sport entirely. I'm talking about tweaking. And if you watch the games on a regular basis, I'm pretty sure you would agree that a few tweaks wouldn't kill this thing. So, yes, that's all in, ahead of us. Let's see how it all plays out. I'm not confident we're going to get an agreement before December 1st. And my question ultimately is going to be, when does this thing get done? And my over-under is January 25th. Wow, that's specific. January 25th. Well, I didn't want to go to February 1st because February 1st, you're really pushing spring training. So I'm saying I'll give it a few days before that. All right, well, I would no, be thrilled. There's no science to this, Tim. I just picked it up over there. <laughs> I, I would. Well, you know, when I was uh, when my wife was pregnant, we do a Jets podcast here, and they were going to do a pool for when that was going to happen, and three weeks early, so we didn't even uh, didn't even get the pool up before the baby came. So I feel <laughs> like this is sim- similarly unknown stuff going on. Well, let's here hope with the uh, CBA yeah. comes early too. 
Yeah, yeah. I'd be thrilled with January twenty fifth. All right, let, one more, and let's let's end things. Well, hopefully on a positive. It's it's asking for a positive. This one from Jason. He says, "I have a question regarding the CBA. Since we always hear the negative about the players' association and the owners, is there anything positive that is going on in these negotiations, or is the relationship really that bad between the two? Well, the relationship is not great. Now, the one thing they have done in a positive sense the last two seasons, the two parties." is agree on COVID protocols and get through two seasons now in the middle of a pandemic. And they did it by working together. That was really the leading example, the shining example of how the player side and the owner side can work together to accomplish really important things. But at the same time, we've seen in many cases situations where they have not agreed on things. And I can point to several cases the universal dh and expanded playoffs didn't agree on that didn't agree on the 2020 season the way it would be played out the commissioner if you remember rob manfred had to impose a 60 game schedule the draft in 2020 they could not agree on a number of rounds mlb imposed a five-round draft and it went back to 20 last year still not at 40 where it was before And even going to the 2021 season, there was talk of a delay. They did not agree on that either, which was probably a good thing because even though I was one who advocated for a delay, I thought it was the best thing for the sport, certainly turned out that we were able to play 162 on the normal schedule and good for everyone involved. So what I'm saying here is the track record for getting agreements on larger things is not good and larger things... When I say that, I mean larger than the COVID protocols, which were not inconsequential. Now we're talking about core economic issues. We're talking about rules. We're talking about a lot of things that are even, frankly, bigger than what we've discussed before. And there are any number of elements in play in any CBA, multiple elements, numerous elements, and they're going to agree on all of them by December 1st. I'm not feeling it. No, but January 25th, again, would be great. So let's, let's continue well, hey, to shoot for Let me explain that a little bit further, Tim. That's a, I'm glad you brought it back to that. December 1st is when the agreement expires. I don't see it as the actual deadline. And the reason is there's no games in December, no games in January, no spring training games even until, what, March 1st. So what you want to see is a normal spring training, full six weeks so players have time to train properly and do not risk injury in a condensed spring training. And as long as the sport is up and running by then, that to me will be a win. Absolutely. We can take that for sure. All right. Uh, great an- great questions. Great answers from you, Ken. Uh, if people want to get involved for the next mailbag, which will be coming up in a couple of weeks, right around the time of that impending lockout, you can call the show at 646-543-7072 or email tabaseballshow at gmail.com. Keep coming back to the Athletic Baseball Show all week long on Wednesday. I'm Angelic hosts a roundtable discussion about tanking in baseball. How has it hurt the game? What can be done to fix it? Then on Thursday, it's the Baseball Barista with Hunter Pence and Grant Brisby. Great stuff all offseason long, uh, whether there is a lockout or not. You can tune in to the Athletic Baseball Show. Ken, great stuff again. Thanks for jumping on. Thank you, Tim. All right, get back to the texting, and we will talk to everybody in a couple of weeks.